I want to welcome everybody back to the Behind the Well Show. Roger Abel with Elias Randall. Elias, how you doing today? Good, Roger. That's how are you? Good, good. Fun month here. Financial Literacy Month kicks off in April. I thought it'd be a good time to talk about that. I know we've talked about financial literacy a lot on a radio show and how we, we think there's a lack of it. And there, there's a few interesting things in in some of the research that we did. But I wanted to kick it off and just ask you, what do you think the biggest issue with financial literacy is and where does it start? Uh, okay, biggest issue with financial literacy. Well, kind of the, to me, the fundamental issue is the lack of understanding. So then that knowledge isn't being passed on. So like most educators, most parents out there, there's far less families and educators that I think understand investing in finance um, than people that do. So it's kind of, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, the school should teach it or so, or parents should teach their kids. But if you don't know where to start, how would you start how would you help someone with that? And it's not, and it's not something everyone necessarily should know. Cause if you just think about it, the rate of think about a person in their career, well, let's say, let's take like a a nurse, for example, well, they know far more about healthcare than I'm ever going to know. And should they also be expected to know all the things we know about investing and personal finance? Probably not. So it's just kind of something that perpetuates itself because, you know, I don't know who I don't know who who should be responsible for teaching it. Well, I I view this really. I think you have to take financial literacy and break it into two parts. You've got just like your everyday money management skills, so your budgeting, um, you know, just just running your normal household money, and then I think you break it into investing in retirement. I think they're two separate skill sets out there. And I, and I actually believe that sometimes when people know too much or think they know too much about investing, there's a level of overconfidence there. So when I think of financial literacy, I, I'm actually not focused on the investment side of things because that's the easiest one to go outsource to somebody. You're going to outsource your investing. You can't outsource your every single day money management of your household. So that's how I kind of want to think about this. But here's some really interesting stats. 60% of non-retirees didn't think that their retirement savings were on track in 2021. So 60% of the people think that they're not on track, which I think you could figure this out really easily. You could remove remove this don't think into don't know or do know based upon running a financial plan. It's really easy to find out if you're on track. You can connect with the financial advisor at our firm or some other firm, run a plan, find out if you're on track. And for people out there who are 40 years old saying, I don't need to focus on this, this is the time to do it. If you're 40 years old, you still have time to make corrective actions. You can be 45, 50, 55, it's never too late. And I'll use the story that I, that I had a meeting with a gentleman just two days ago. And he came to us when he was 60 and we ran a financial plan and he'd been through a lot. 
a bunch of stuff in his life's not really his fault. And that happens to a lot of people. They might have a health event for themselves or a family member that puts them off of track or behind track for retirement. And he came here and his probability of success after we ran all the modeling was like 60%. So it wasn't great. But he said, hey, I've got another six to eight years to work. What do I need to do? So through the planning process, we were able to say, you know, this is the amount of money you need to be saving to get to where you want to go. He came in two days ago, like we always do. We always run through the financial plan, update the numbers. His probability of success with the same exact goal he had six years ago was 99% now. Good for him. Think about it though. The market's down 15%. His probability went all the way up. And most people think that the market determines what's really going to happen with your probability of success. And I looked over and I just said, Hey, you've done a great job. This is all because of you. He goes, no, it's because of you guys. I said, no, it's not. I gave you and armed you with the information, but you actually had to do all of the hard work in the situation right. and go save the money. And what he actually didn't realize was he actually was saving more, saving more than what we'd recommended six years ago. He didn't know that. Well, he's maxed out his 401k and that was kind of the recommendation. But then he went and started another account where he's been putting in 1500 bucks a month. Wow. Good. So he just yeah. kicked Good butt. And so people think, hey, it's too late. Well, no, I mean, this is 60 years old. He turned his whole retirement around. It wasn't like he was going to be destitute to start with, but it wasn't the goal that he necessarily wanted in the beginning. So if you're part of the 60% that, don't think you're on track for retirement. Why don't you go find out? It's very easy to find out. In 2021, on average, Americans lose $1,389 because of lack of personal finance knowledge. So that's just making a bad, a bad financial mistake and not being informed. 25% of Americans say they don't have anyone they can ask for trusted financial guidance. I actually, here's what's interesting about that number. I thought it would be higher, but I wonder if they, you know, they trust someone with financial guidance. So if you think about this, we all believe our parents know what they're doing with money, right? We, we would, I mean, I would think most people would say, especially if you're like in your twenties and 25 and 30 and 35, like you go to your parents and ask that question. What I really want to know is how many of those people's parents are actually really good with money. And I'm going to guess most of them aren't. So I, are they actually getting good information? 23% of all U.S. adults, 18 to 29, have credit card debt that's over 90 days overdue. So one in four accounts are 90 days overdue on their credit card. Yeah, and I think that's a product of, um, you know, one time someone mentioned to me that there's a lot of places that will teach you how to spend money but not nearly as many places that will teach you how to save money or budget. And just think about the constant advertising we're all exposed to from whether it's radio and radio advertisements, the television we watch and the television advertisements, even um, social media is all about data, you know, collecting all the data and then advertising to people. I, I feel like I can still remember when you'd get on, uh, like Facebook, for example, and it was just about connecting and networking with people that you weren't close to anymore and close in terms of proximity. 
Um, you could stay connected with family members out of state. Well, now if I look at my Facebook, I have, it seems like more ads than, um, and ads for either products or Facebook reels than just seeing what my friends, right? My Facebook friends, what their life is all about. And I think that leads to things like this where credit card, it's easy to spend money. You just, social, you're right. Social media's made it easy. Yeah. Uh, and I've got, I've been on there before. I never forget this. We do a thing with some friends called Fancy Christmas, where it's basically just like five or six couples. We get together, we go to a nice restaurant and get a hotel room for the night away from our kids. And we call it Fancy Christmas. Well, we all grew up in the 90s. So 90s rap was like really popular. I mean, like most of my friends that I do this with graduate 99, I graduate 97. Now I was on Facebook and there was an advertisement for Snoop Dogg's like brand of wine. So I clicked on, I'm like, oh, this would be fun to take to fancy Christmas. So I get in there and I get a case put into the, get it put in the cart. I'm like, what am I doing? I don't need to buy a case of Snoop Dogg wine. <laughs> but point was I'd already like, it took me like thinking about it a second time. Like, why am I buying this? Because it was advertised to me on Facebook. Cause I didn't think I needed to go search it out and go source it out or you know, in a, in a regular, um, wine shop. And it's like, cool. It's Snoop Dogg wine. What's not, well, I didn't order cool I backed out. That. I'm like, why am I ordering this? I backed out. But the point is all of this is there. It makes it very, very easy to spend money. I'm going to give you a really shocking one. Uh, 42% of teens get their financial education from social media. So I'm a little on the, uh, I'm on the fence a little bit about whether that's good or bad. I know, which we know there's plenty of garbage um, social media posts about investing in our business. But I do think there is a lot of good financial education content out it's there. educational. And, Most is right. educational. Right. And we were talking with the family the other day and you brought up and I thought it was a pretty good point about investor behavior seems to be better than it was five years ago, 10 years ago. I mean, really look like 50 years ago, I think investor behavior is way better now than, than back then. And I feel like there was a time during the last year where I personally thought, wow, the selling in the market could get really bad. And it was, it was already bad. And then I'm thinking this could get even worse, but I think social media should, there, there maybe is some credit due on providing good education to investors now, that being said, you kind of have to seek it out because it's easy to come across a TikTok that promises you with $100 a week, you can become a millionaire in 12 or 24 months, and that's never going to happen. But I think there are some benefits to more good financial content being available for uh, for retail investors. What people need to figure out is, is this a full-blown advertisement where I'm going to have to sign up for a subscription or are they truly trying to educate me? Think about our show. That's a good most, first question. Most of the show is education. We've done a live radio show for 14 years. We don't make people sign up and give us a monthly subscription fee. Say it costs eight bucks to listen. We're not no. trying to sell a widget to them. We're providing education. If we can help them with their money, that's great. If we can't, we're still going to provide the education. So it kind of goes back to one of the original core principles of, of our company and we had a guide created years ago called the Retirement Survival Guide. If you want to go download it, you can go to btwellshow.com and download the survival guide. But one of the 
key things in there was how to build a media filter. This was written in like 2010, I think. So if you think about it, it's more important today than ever to have some type of a media filter because there's just a lot more of it. Here's the cool statistic other than, you know, 42% of teens getting their information from social media isn't great, but here's the, the good news. The good news is 73% of teens reported wanting more personal financial education. So that means they want it. The, I think the issue is here, we have to figure out how to provide it to them in a fashion that is not an advertisement to a get rich quick scheme. Because I've, you know, during 2000, during COVID, the, the get rich quick schemes and the options trading strategies and all of this stuff that, you know, came to light on YouTube and TikTok and Facebook and every social media platform, it was, hey, I'm gonna get rich quick. And then it led into real estate investing. You know, part of the reason price of real estate's up, I'm pretty sure is really easy for people to get a bunch of free information on TikTok about it and think they need to go have a vacation rental and start their own VRBO. It's not that easy, guys. There's no business in the world that's easy. But they make it look easy. You can easy. just start so with that. 41% of teens don't know what a 401k is and 32% of teens don't know the difference between a debit card and a credit card. So I don't really, I'll be honest, I don't know if it's really important for a, a teenager to know what a 401k is at this point. No. You know what's important for a teenager to do is figure out what decision I'm gonna make when I graduate my senior year of high school. Am I going to college? That's one. And it doesn't matter if you are or you aren't. But two, if I'm going to college, how am I gonna pay for it? Because for the last 30 years, the default option has been, there's been two default options. Mom and dad pay for it, if you're fortunate enough to have that, or I'm taking out student loans. And that's why we're in the crisis today. And the student loan industry is a business. It is actually not there to help your kid with college. It's a business. And I know people that have on both spectrums here when they went to school, one where we borrowed just astronomical amounts of money to go to college. And two, I got a four year degree and a law degree and never took out any debt and mom and dad didn't give me a dollar because they worked their way through college. College isn't a full-time job. We've all been there. It's a part-time well, job and a party the rest of the time. It feel, when you're going through it, it does feel, I was talking with some friends about this. When you're in college and like it's finals week, you just think you're so busy. And then you start your career, you start a family, and you would go back to those days in a heartbeat. If like, if that's all the busy you were that you had to take three tests in one week, you'd feel like you had nothing going on. Do you want to know why finals week is so busy for everybody? Probably because you didn't study throughout the semester. They, they just started studying a week and a half before yeah, the final. They didn't do the incremental work along the way. And I, I did the same thing. Well, I don't need to worry about this. I'll worry about it before the final. And then I crammed for the final and yeah, it was not fun. But that's how I got through it. If you actually approach it as a job where each week, or like we do here, we try to get better at one thing a week. Well, if you just took, hey, I'm going to take care of this one thing this week, it wouldn't be so bad. Oh, I know for a fact, if I were to apply the energy and effort towards school, like if I were to go back to school and treat it like a job, like I do my career, I could probably almost get a 4.0. 
I mean, if you really took it that serious, you could probably graduate with almost anyone could graduate with honors if you just did the work. Getting a 4.0, you have to have some level of intellect to get that, but you don't have to be above average. You could be no, average. It's more, it's you more have to put the in work. the work. Yeah. You got to put the work in, which is with most things in life, you got to put in the work. Now, I okay, I should preface that. It would depend on subject too. Like I couldn't go study chemistry or like physics, something I'm just absolutely not interested in and perform well. In well, but I would do better now at my age now than at 18 to 22 and by so a lot. You made a key point, interested in. You could do it. You just wouldn't do it because you're not interested in it. Yeah. I think I could take any subject, Elias, and if they said, hey, here's a gun to your head, you have to get a 4.0 the next four years and you're only studying the chemistry subject matter, I bet I'd get a 4.0 because you'd put the work in to do it. But I agree with you. You're not going to intrinsically motivate people to do something that they're not interested in. I know personally when I went through school, all the business courses, I did great. I was interested in those. Those were fun. I had to take a Chinese history class. It didn't turn out so well. Yeah, I think even now, all my memories of classes I liked, it was all the business classes, the economics classes, any finance classes. I, I still, my memories of the things I liked were all around that. And I went to a small school where liberal, liberal arts college, so you had to take what you're studying and other things. And I learned some valuable stuff in like the social studies classes and the history classes and things that were neat, but it's not really, it's not what I was there for, at least in my mind at that time. So I ran across a really cool article and, you know, when we start thinking about how we're going to help or improve financial education, it really starts with younger generations. And it could start when they're in kindergarten, first, second, third grade, fourth grade, eighth grade. You really got to get this into their head before they get out on their own because they're going to get student loans. They're going to get a credit card. They got to make these decisions. So there was an article about a third grade teacher. Her name was Miss Lattimore. And she teaches her kids about money through the classroom. Um, she assigns jobs and activities to her students. And they're complete. They're they're paid for completing the job, but here's where it gets really interesting. Each student must pay five dollars to rent their desk and chair. This is monopoly money or something that I, she has in the class. I don't know. I I don't I don't know. I don't know if it's real money or monopoly money. But either way, they got to pay five dollars. Okay, you got to rent your desk and your chair. They can earn extra money, and the extra money they earn can be redeemed for rewards like free time or being the teacher for a day, all at varying prices. Or the students can decide to buy something at a lower value each week or save money for larger rewards. She's, and what she's done is she's really incorporated like some of the key things that people need to think about in life. You're gonna have to pay your bills on time, right? Mm -hmm. And you're gonna have to figure out how to allocate your dollars to get the things you want. But here's the other cool thing. To teach about inflation, she raises the cost of the reward items. That's a poke in the eye by the teacher right there. So you know what I said to my wife wow. last night? I was talking about this because I've got a seven-year-old. I got a four-year-old. How do I incorporate this into the house? And, you know, we've heard for years, oh, yeah, you pay kids for chores. Okay, fine. We can pay them for chores. But maybe there needs to be, hey, my, my, girl, my daughter loves to play Roblox. 
Well, you can use that money towards Roblox points, or you can use that money to buy more pad time, like reward them for, because if I let my daughter be on the iPad all day, she would, but I limit it to that one hour a day, like that's your total time. Buy more, buy more pad time. And then I had the idea, I'm like, we could actually teach them about investing. We could say, hey, if you don't want to use your money, mom and dad could set up a matching fund if you leave it in for one month, two months, three months, and we can kind of like pay interest to it. So we've, I'm trying to figure out how I incorporate this to my, into my house so that it just becomes like every day and it's not just give these kids everything they want. Yeah, I, I like that. So one, and I think it's been effective. One thing I've done, my oldest is eight now, so not really with her anymore, but my son, who's four, um, and obviously he loves sweets and candy. So he'll ask, can I have a piece of candy? And I've to try and start to teach him about delayed gratification. I'll say something like Preston, you can have one piece of candy now, or if you do this small chore, you can have two pieces after that. And, you know, a year ago when I started, he didn't care about waiting for two pieces of candy. He's like me. He's just, I'll take the candy right now. Um, but now he's kind of starting to starting to learn and it's more frequent that he'll say, okay, I'll do that. And then I want two pieces of candy, which, you know, some of these things are a little more in depth than that, but I feel like that's a start anyway. Yeah. That, I like that, but I, I don't know. I'm going to figure out how to incorporate it into my house. Cause there's all these things that we're doing. We're like, well, if you do this, then you can get more pad time. Might as well just make it money related and you have the ability to buy more pad time. Start teaching the girls about what the S&P 500 is and no, they stocks and bonds. They I'm, don't need to I'm do kidding. that. No, I'm I know, kidding. but I'm just saying, how do you start to, and you, if, the thing is to do it, it's gonna take a level of effort on mom and dad's part. Like it's gonna take yeah. a level of effort for me to think through this and say, hey, here's what we're gonna do. And here's how much money you get for each one of these things. Um, I really I, like the iPad time but we could do it for everything well idea. okay if you want to go to the jump park great you accumulate enough points or money or whatever it is and we can go to the jump park do i make them pay for it all no but hey yeah we can go do this or you want to go to orange leaf or dairy queen whatever special thing you want to do so have it, some gratification to go versus just dad i want to go at what age can you start charging your kids rent for their bedroom I don't know. You're, you're, not turn, Elias, you're not turning this into a business. Turn, turn, I mean, this classroom teacher has. Turn 14, go get a job. <laughs> you owe me $100 a month now for that bed. But, you know, you could start. And, you know, if you think about like Dave Ramsey, he always talks about a car. Instead of just buying your kids a car, have a matching fund. Have them have some skin in the game. They save up five grand. Great. I'll give you five. You get a $10,000 car. Teach them how that works. Versus, yep, here's your new car. Yeah, and you take it. I feel like at least me personally, I w my first vehicle was given to me and then the second one I bought. And which one do you think I took better care of? The one you bought. Yeah, because I had, it, I spent my good money on this. I got to take care of it. It's kind of like going to college. If someone's paying for all of it, you don't have any skin in the game. If you're paying for it, it's not going to take you five years if you're writing the check gonna take you four oh. you can get her done stay for five years if you want to have a good time i mean i did the five-year plan <laughs> did you absolutely <laughs> so a friend of mine and he did the five-year plan he used to say graduating college in four years is like leaving a party at 10 o'clock 
That's a great one. Probably not good uh, probably not good sound advice for a financial podcast, but some people do it that way. I, I think with all the financial education, one thing that's out there is we always find these like what we would call money myths. Let let's just run through what some of these are, and we've talked about this one before, but the number one myth is that giving up a daily coffee purchase is a financial game changer. Well, yeah. it could be, but it's not the coffee. It's no. coffee is the easy bully here. Eliminating your coffee is not going to change your life. Your saving habits are going to change your life. People have played this game forever. It used to be cigarettes. Well, if I gave up smoking, I'd have an extra $300 a month. Well, they give the smoking, but they don't invest the $300. If you give up your $4 a day coffee, you're not going to invest $120. It's just an easy target because we see fancy coffee as completely discretionary and unneeded. But we also can assign a value to what the coffee is. So then we can plug it into a long-term analysis of what this cup of coffee costs you. Most people are making bigger financial mistakes than their coffee. They are, and I don't know how, it's probably the book, right? That Latte Factor book, but how did coffee get such a bad reputation? Yeah, but the Latte Factor, they didn't even talk about giving up the latte. It was more about putting structure to your life and paying yourself first. So the whole book was about. But the reason it is, it's an easy target. Like I said, it used to be cigarettes. Right. And then it turned to coffee because people don't smoke as much as they used to, and coffee's the easy target. And in 20 years, there'll be another target. Yeah, and I always get a kick out of... um, because we we'll, we have younger families that are very responsible, serious about their money, and so I'll hear a comment like, "Well, you know, I could give up my my Starbucks or my scooters, wherever it is that they like to go." I've told plenty of people, "Why? You're doing all the right things. Why would you give up something that you enjoy?" Oh, really? You don't you know you don't think I need to? If, trust me, if I thought that that would actually help you, I would tell you that they're going to spend it somewhere else. The only way that works is if you literally say I drink a $4 coffee a day and you take $4 invested every day in addition to what you're already doing. Right. But if you're, if your savings rate is already good for what your lifestyle and your goals are, then why would you give up lifestyle of having a coffee that you enjoy? Well, people like people like Graham Stephan have making it really popular. I drink a 14 cent coffee. No, I drink a $4 and 79 cent coffee every single day. I'm doing just fine. Well, but but that's his stick. Right. Like that's his stick. Our stick's not I shouldn't say he's cheap. He just doesn't like to spend money on coffee. That's right. He doesn't like to spend money on coffee. In fact, I just heard a podcast he did talking about he uh, he has his own coffee brand now, and I forget the name of it. Good for him. Part of it was, um, well, as a listener, went to to, uh, partner with him. But when they price pointed it, they couldn't put a premium price point on it. Because Graham wouldn't pay for expensive coffee. So they had to put more of a discounted price point on the coffee because it doesn't really go along with the entire, like, if you tell your, if you tell your, tell your listeners that drink 14 cent coffee, you you can't can't convince them into a $2 pod. Right. Huh. That's funny how that worked. But I I thought it was just a good, because, you know, I like Graham stuff and I like to listen to him. I think he gives like good general advice, but he's kind of known as the cheap coffee guy. Myth two, auto dealers give you the best rate on a loan. No, no, they don't. The best rate on the loan is given to you by yourself when you write a check for the car. Ooh, That's I like the that. best rate on a loan. And auto dealers typically are not the lowest rate. They might be the most convenient 
way to do it, but it's typically not the lowest rate. You know, the, the auto dealer makes money on the financing of the vehicle and the extended warranties and all those different things. And I have no problem with that. They're running a business, they're providing a service, and they're providing convenience. But just because you go there and they give you a rate doesn't mean it's the best rate. No, it does not. So number three, that's a good one here. Financial advice always has your best interest at heart. So are all financial advisors the same? Are all firms the same? No, I think we know that to be true. That's that's not true. Not every firm is the same or has the same um, philosophy. And I think, um, you know, it almost kind of goes along with the, uh, the finance anyone, not anyone, but you might have a life insurance agent that calls himself a financial advisor and they may not even have any securities licenses. To me, that's the same as, you know, if I go out and I buy a pickup and I put a ladder rack on it and I drive around town with a ladder and I tell everyone I'm a contractor, it's kind of the same thing. Whether I have any skills or not, that's a whole different conversation. So I do think, you know, I do think when you're meeting with people or taking advice from people, there's, um, you should make sure that they have a philosophy and they're going to help you in a way that, that, that makes sense. And they're properly licensed. At minimum, they should have some securities licenses. I would prefer that they have the licenses that allow them to do anything if I was going to be um, hiring someone. So Elias, myth number four out of all the ones we're going to talk about, to me, I think is the biggest myth out there. And it's hiring an advisor only benefits the wealthy. And this has been... I think the reason people believe this, there are firms out there that have account minimums. And I want to tell you now, if a firm has a $500,000 account minimum, they're not really focused on helping you. They're focused on only helping people that provide the right net profit margin for them. That is I, true. I can argue that most of the help really happens for people, the real help happens for people under 500,000 because they have to get there. If you've got $3 million, you should have an advisor. They're going to help you. But you got there on your own saving $3 million. You'll probably be okay. But if you've got, if you're 40 years old and you got $80,000 saved for retirement, you probably could use some help. So we've had a motto here, we take them all. Like we help everybody because part of our, our motto here is to educate and inspire people. Yeah, they may not be as profitable for our firm, that's okay. They're gonna spread the word, we're gonna help them out, we're gonna feel good about what, what we do for them. And we're not focused on the profit margin, we're focused on helping people. So just, I want people to think about that, that are listening to the show. If the firm says, I have an account minimum, why? It's not about helping you. It's for their benefit. Yeah, and that's such an, an account minimum. It's just kind of an arbitrary number. Like, how do you even select that? Which I know how they're selecting it. So wait, they're let, looking let's at get it straight. Profit. When you, I want people to think, when you were 35 years old and you were putting $500 a month in a Roth IRA, they don't want to help you because you only have $500 a month. But when you're 60 years old with $3 million, they're happy to help you. 
Imagine that. Who did the hard work? You <laughs> right, did. Right. Like that's where it starts. It starts small. Yeah. Um, and other so, than the other thing I want to tag on there, other than the account minimum, some feedback I've gotten from people is they kind of get ghosted by advisors, which that might not mean they have an account minimum, but that definitely signals they're not serious about helping you. And there are, there are, and it's almost kind of sad because there are young people out there and we meet them all the time that are doing all the right things. They just want some professional guidance as to what investments to buy because they don't understand that side of it, but they have the right, you know, they have low debt, they're cash flowing, they're living within their means, they're doing all the right things. They just want a little fine tuning, but they can't get anyone to just kind of pay attention to them for a few meetings and help them through the process. And it's unfortunate because those, you know, I, I can think of a, a dozen, two, maybe two dozen, just off the top of my head of younger families that someday are probably going to be the richest families that our firm works with. And, but we're helping them right now. Nobody wants to help them now, but they're all going to want to help them in 30 years. Yeah. Every single try. one of them. <laughs> right. and let's be honest. If you're a financial advisor listening to this show, how long does it really take to help a 27 year old open a Roth IRA and how much work is it? It's, it's going to be much. It's yeah. not much. Uh, paying your mortgage off early isn't worth it. It's a good one. In there's always been the argument that, oh, well, you get the interest deduction for your mortgage. I can't pay my mortgage off early. I need a tax deduction. False. Reality is most people, if you're a husband and wife with two kids, you're making 160,000 a year, your effective tax rate is probably under 15%. Yeah, why do you need So why, why do you need, need a tax, tax deduction? Yeah. It's minimal. Yeah, if you're if you're in making seven hundred thousand a year, maybe you could argue that. For most people, the ideal step here is make sure we're saving enough for retirement, and then start accelerating payments on your house, so you can get this thing knocked out before you retire. If you're if your whole idea is we're never going to pay our house off, that means at some point you're gonna you're basically renting forever. One was renting a good idea, unless you don't know where you're going, you don't have commitment to being in a place. If it, and if, yeah, if you're never gonna pay off your mortgage, you might as well just rent and not have any of the extra it, liability that comes with home ownership. Elias, it's kind of like when people refinance their mortgage. They had a 30 year mortgage, and we're gonna see it here in the next five years, because we've taken out, this year there's loans going out at five and a half, six and a half, seven percent. A lot of them are adjustable rate mortgages being done right now. So what's gonna happen in five years if rates are down or in three years, if rates are down, people are gonna start refinancing. And let's say they had a 30 year mortgage, they're five years in, you know what they're gonna do? They're gonna refinance to a 30 year mortgage to Take get a lower what? payment. They yeah. really should be financing to a 25 if they had a 30. Like don't extend your period of time, keep the period of time the same and save the interest rate. And ideally you get on a 15 year mortgage, that's how you knock this out. Yeah. And, um, you know, what's Dave Ramsey always say? I've never seen a paid off home get foreclosed on. So what's the value in that? Knowing that your house is paid for and pay the property taxes, you're never going to lose it. I can tell you story after story of clients who've come to us and I, one off the top of my head, she, her husband passed away and she had life insurance money and the advisor she was working with said, don't, don't, don't pay the house off. You can do better investing. She came to us and just said, pay it off. 
Why do you want any bills? Yeah, simplify it. She's doubled her money. And not it's just market. She's been with us quite a while. House is paid off. And you know, when you have a paid off house, all your worries go away. It's your biggest, for most people, it's a biggest expense. If you don't have a house to pay for, most people can figure out how to manage their cell phone bill and their food and that stuff. It's the biggest expense for people. So there's value in paying your home off early. And I know my parents are getting ready to retire. I told them the year you retire, you need to have the house paid off. So whatever that period of time, if you're 13 years out, we got to figure out how to have payments that knock this out over 13 years, which it's easy to do. There's amortization calculators. You can go to our website, just ask us for help. We can tell you how long it takes to pay it off. It's not hard. It takes a very, very small amount of time to actually figure that out. So myth six here, you don't need emergency savings. Yeah, that's um, the most egregious myth. I like how that's stated. That That's um, everyone needs an emergency fund. There's things that are going to happen and I don't know if you're like my family, it happens in threes every time. We never, uh, just recently we had, what was it? New brakes on one car and a headlight on the other and then something else. Alternator. Oh yeah, the alter- yeah, that, that was the three things. One car needed brakes, a headlight, and the other one needed an alternator. Well, it was easy to deal with because we have an emergency fund and that's what that money's for. Um, and it's really something the other thing it does and how it's relevant for the environment we're in now, a recession and layoffs and all these things are starting to happen. If you have an emergency fund that's appropriately funded, you can outlast some hard times and then you don't have to rob your 401k or your retirement to make ends meet, which is, I mean, if you want to blow up your long-term financial situation, start taking money out of your retirement plans. That's an easy way to do that. The emergency fund is probably the backbone of most solid household budgets, financial accounting, and retirement plans. Like, it's the backbone of it. It's the thing that stops really bad things from happening to you when things don't go your way. And it's not just, and I I look at it's bigger than just the car, like the three things you had happen. It's what happens if I don't have a job for six months? It's a bigger question. If you have an emergency savings account, it's not going to be fun to to use it. But the alternative is you're going to go into debt or not pay your bills. If you don't have one, it should be the number one thing you try to get established. Six months, get six months of living expenses. Things are just a lot easier when you have a cushion, you have a backbone somewhere to rely on. It provides um, peace of mind too. Like, I mean, I know like, okay, could I take my emergency fund money and and invest it and over the long term, like make more return and stuff like that. I could, but I value the peace of mind that I have knowing that if my family needs it, we have access to it right away and we can take care of the emergency. The good news. So one of the good things about what's happened in the actual economy, though, for the last 15 years, your emergency fund basically stayed at zero, like interest wise. So you had people thought like, hey, I should invest in the market. I have to reach to get some return. Well, you can go out and get, you know, relatively safe liquid investments for three, four percent today. You're actually going to earn a fair rate on that cash, which is nice. Yeah, it's nice. Like you don't feel so bad about having your 30,000 sitting there at four percent versus 30,000 zero. And the thing about an emergency fund, the real goal is to just have it there forever. 
We don't ever really want to tap it, right? Yeah. That's the goal. It's like, hey, we don't have to tap this. It's for emergencies only. Emergencies aren't, you know, new furniture, a remodel. Like, it's truly an emergency. Um, and number seven, you got to monitor the stock market every day. I think that the advent of the ability to check your 401k every single day has done more damage than good for most investors. And that's not me making that up. That studies by Dalbar, which, um, you know, surveys how investors are doing against, against benchmarks. And every single year, the average investor underperforms the benchmark massively because they're always interested in buying whatever did great last year and selling whatever did the worst when they checked their 401k. And if their 401k goes down 10, 12, 13%, they feel like they have to do something. You don't have to do anything. The best investment behavior is doing very little most of the time. But people that get on and check the 401k, they get excited, went down 5%. I have to do something. Had a call with a guy last night. My, comp, you know, this investment account I have with a very popular company, and it's not unexpected, it's down 40,000. I have to do something. I, and I asked him, I said, how do you know? Well, I just feel like I have to do something. I said, maybe we should put a financial plan together to figure out if we should do something because that may not be in your best interest. It, it may not. And a lot of times successful investing is just, it's, it can be very boring and maybe sometimes it should be. And I, the other big mistake I see retail investors make is market timing or believing they can time the market um, or, or having that expectation that that they're going to do that so i don't know that there's really you know i don't know how how valuable the information is just day-to-day -day market movement but i i think you can make you can make kind of like macroeconomic decisions about your money or like asset allocation decisions you can do things like that um but I mean, really, other than people in the finance business, like who has time to learn all that and keep track of everything? I didn't even tell you this, but, you know, I was at um, the LPL Masters Conference last week, which is our broker dealer. They're, they're, they're changing the default statement delivery to clients to quarterly. You can request to go monthly, but they're changing it to quarterly. Default to quarterly? Why? Yeah. To just help improve investor behavior? Yeah, most people looked, I mean, you think about it, we, we have we all have some clients that check this every single month. They get excited month over month. I'm like, this isn't relevant. It's only relevant if you're a trader. So now this is gonna start going quarterly, which it's gonna help improve investor behavior. Most people don't care if they see it, but we're just providing it. So we get them all upset. Like there, <sighs> no one's upset when the market just goes up. Yeah. But when times, when there's turmoil, people just, and it grinds lower. And we talked about this about a year ago, the longer, we stay in this bear market and we're not really in a bear market now, but in a market that's negative over the last 18 months and it just grinds about the same, more and more people start to lose confidence because it hasn't been exciting. It hasn't been fun. I'm not making money every single month. Like that erodes investor confidence, but it's all just really part of the truly financial business cycle. It is. And we talk about, and I think it's ironic because we do, talk with people that if it's too emotional, then don't look. But then on the other side of that, because of just to 
add on to your point about the statements, we also provide an app for people's phone that they can log into their accounts. We provide online access and that's all part of providing the right level of customer service, but it is kind of, it, it's ironic that we, that's kind of one of the strategies. Well, if it's bothering you, don't monitor it so much, but we obviously provide all the tools to be able to monitor every second of the day if you want to. Well, with that said, I hope everybody takes the month of April, take a little bit of time to figure out how you can improve you know, your financial life because it is Financial Literacy Month. Um, if anybody's looking for help, you can go to btwellshow.com. We'd be happy to help you. Till next time, I wanna thank everybody for listening. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.